Have you ever been in a tough situation, a real dilemma, and you really wondered which way to turn and how to resolve it? It's at times like that we need leadership. Somebody to step up, somebody to make the call, somebody to say, hey, let's work together and, and resolve this problem here. I believe that God gives the gift of leadership like other gifts. If God has given us the gift of leadership, if I might call it that, He wants us to lead for Him. He wants us to lead for the Lord like a Nehemiah did. Nehemiah took what God had given him and used it for God's glory. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and the second chapter. Nehemiah chapter 2. The year here is around, well, I suppose, 450 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. But really, the story starts decades before this, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and took many of the Jewish people captive back to Babylon. Well, Babylon was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, and Cyrus the king, around 536 B.C., allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild. But decades passed. The job wasn't getting done. And really, the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem were a reproach and the mockery and the scorn of those inhabitants of the area there. And there was one man who had a burden about this. His name was Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is his journal. It's his diary. It's an opportunity for us to look into what was on his heart as this unraveled, as this unfolded, what he was thinking and feeling and what was taking place here? Nehemiah was a great leader. And we're going to look at his leadership tonight as we talk about leading for the Lord. Now, we were in Nehemiah chapter 2 earlier today and covered the first 10 verses. So let's pick up in verse number 11. He says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me. Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, Neither was there any beast with me, save or except the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon gate, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook, and viewed the wall, and turned back, and entered by the gate of the valley, and so returned." And the rulers knew not whether I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates are ever burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye will do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but ye have no portion, nor right, 
nor memorial in Jerusalem. I'd like to take a look at this passage and deal with this subject, leading for the Lord. Not being led by the Lord, but leading for the Lord. Let's pray before we begin. Now, our Heavenly Father, we ask you, dear Lord, to bless now your word to our hearts. Help us to listen carefully, get some practical truths and answers for our questions and things that will help us to serve you better with at this hour. We pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in a tough situation, a real dilemma, and you really wondered which way to turn and how to resolve it? It's at times like that we need leadership, some type of leadership. Somebody to step up, somebody to make the call, somebody to say, hey, let's work together and, and resolve this problem here. I believe that God gives the gift of leadership like other gifts. And you might say, well, I'm not a leader, but in some sense you are. There's some capacity that God has given you a role in leadership in. Now, you might say, well, God has given me qualities to lead with. And I have aspirations of being a big CEO of a big corporation and making a lot of money every year. Well, you're using your leadership for the wrong reason. If God has given us the gift of leadership, if I might call it that, He wants us to lead for Him. He wants us to lead for the Lord like a Nehemiah did. Nehemiah took what God had given him and used it for God's glory. By the way, leadership is nothing but influence. And any influence that we have ought to be used to help others and lead them to Christ to begin with. Now here we find in the book of Nehemiah something that took place around 450 B.C. And we find out that Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer, was minding his own business back there in Shushan the palace. And his brother visits him. Of course, his brother had just come the 800 miles from Jerusalem to Shushan. And his first question is from Nehemiah is, how's the city? You know, they're supposed to be rebuilding it. How's it going? Brother said, it's not going well. Hecaliah said, the, the gates are burned, the stones are still overturned. It looks like it did like 140 years ago, that night that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the place. Of course, Nehemiah was brokenhearted. He, he wept, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed. And he spent four months doing this before one day he entered in before the king Artaxerxes. And uh, he wasn't in the normal cheerful mood he'd always been. He forgot himself that day. He slipped. Nehemiah uh, was not himself. Because he had a burden for Jerusalem. His heart was back in Jerusalem. A place he had never been. A place he wasn't born in. He'd been raised there in uh, nobility there in Shushan the palace. But it didn't matter. And, and you can take the Jew out of the country, but you can't take the country or the nation out of the Jew. And Jerusalem was in the heart of, of Nehemiah. And so he offers up a quick prayer, gulps hard, and then he tells Artaxerxes, why shouldn't I feel bad? My country back there is lying in ruins and, and uh, nobody's doing anything about it. Artaxerxes said, what are you getting at? And so he gulped harder and he said, well, if you would, I'd sure like to go back, your majesty. And the king talked to the queen. There's some whispering over in the corner and he said, how long are you going to be gone? And Nehemiah had already planned this all out. While he was waiting those four months and praying, he was planning. We talked about that earlier. He had a plan. He knew what, what kind of trees he needed. He, he knew the guards he needed. He knew the letters he needed of permission to get by checkpoints all the way. Had it all planned. How long he was going to be gone? And so the whole thing's arranged just like that because God worked in the heart of that king. That's the only thing that opened the door. I believe Artaxerxes would have been stubborn otherwise, like the Medes and the Persians were. And the, the law of the Medes and Persians altered not. They didn't budge. But God budged this great king. And, and so now Nehemiah's on his way back to Jerusalem. And we pick it up right there as we study chapter 2 here. We find out in verse number 11, he says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. 
As we talk about his leadership, as we talk about his leading for the Lord, we're going to see a few things. First of all, we're going to see what I call the skipper's pondering. Now, he's the leader, right? He's the boss, the skipper, if you will. And what we're going to find him do is something very unusual. In verse 11, he says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Three days? What are you waiting for, man? This place is a mess. And this is where you and I would call a meeting and we say, let's get to work. But not Nehemiah. He was silent for three days. Didn't tell anyone why I was there. Didn't tell anybody what was going on. Speaks to no one. Just kind of quietly looking around. And you say, he is wasting time. No, he wasn't wasting time. I've noticed extremes in Christians. I've noticed lazy Christians. They're Christians just don't do anything. They're lethargic and just kind of sit around. I've noticed Christians who play a lot. They don't serve a lot. They don't work a lot, but they sure have fun. And uh, they get out there and they play. My mother used to call people like that grasshoppers. Oh, they play like the grasshopper. And you can just picture them frolicking through the wheat fields in the summer. There are grasshoppers. Then there are those Christians, and well, they want to do something for God, but they, they're paralyzed. They, they don't know what to do. They, they analyze everything. We talked about that earlier today. Analysis paralysis, where they just have to carry the one and, and cross every T and dot every I and figure out everything. And in the process, they never do anything for God. But then there are Christians who are shakers and movers. And in that case, they run the risk of, of uh, rushing in where, where fools dare not try. And the problem that they can do is they can, they can plunge in and then back up and say, whoa, you know what, I, I should have thought this through a little bit first. If you have ADHD, that's the type of person you are. Your tendency is going to be to just plunge in. I mean, just don't sit there, do something. And they say even as it's wrong. But Nehemiah sat back, and you would say he lost three days of work here. But he was the skipper, and he was pondering, and he was silently thinking. And in verse 12, he says, And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, neither was there any beast with me, save or except the beast that I rode upon. And so he's, he's accompanied by a few attendants here under the covert of night. He slips out, and he is secretly surveying the city, what lies ahead, the job at hand. No doubt Nehemiah had grown up in in grade schools and high schools and schools like us, and he had read Jewish history, he had studied what happened many years ago, actually 140 years earlier when when the city was destroyed. You know, that'd be like us uh, studying the Civil War, if you want to put it in perspective, when I was in grade school or you're in grade school maybe. And so here he is studying uh, ancient history, and we find out he's, he's looking things over. He's pondering. He's the skipper. He's thinking, thinking a lot. You know, maybe he looked at those stones and he pictured that awful night when Jerusalem was destroyed. And maybe he was thinking about a psalm that he had learned as a little boy. Psalm 107, 8 and 9 says, Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Here's the psalmist years later lamenting that awful night and saying, Babylon, wait till you go down. Wait till they take your children and dash them against the stones. And that was a cruel thing the barbarians did. The pagans did things like that to, uh, to uh, destroy the children even of a land. And here's Nehemiah surveying those stones and thinking about that awful night and, and whether a child was was murdered on this stone and and he's surveying everything he's thinking about it in verse 13 
He says, and I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon gate and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. So he kind of pulls out the south or southwest corner of the city. Verse 14, he says, then I went to the gate of the fountain, to the king's pool. He's making his way around the south end and toward the east, but there was no place for the beast that was under me. I mean, the, the rubble was so intense that he couldn't even pass through in certain areas. Then he says in verse 15, Then I went up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. So he went back the way he had gone and he gets back to Jerusalem. The sun is coming up. Notice in verse 16, And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. In other words, no one knew. Nobody knew what he was up to. Now, this is a part of a leader that people don't see normally. That pondering time. You know, the public thinks the leader just kind of just basks in the, the sunbeams and the limelights of the crowd and he goes from one event to another and, and one accolade to the next and, and that's success. But that's not success. That's not leadership. That's not where leaders are made. It's in the silence that leaders are made. It's in the solitude that we earn the respect of the public eventually. It's that time alone. It's that time thinking. It's that time musing. That time pondering. You know, we might look at the likes of a great leader uh, like Moses. And we might look at the last 40 years of his life and go, wow, what he accomplished that last 40 years. But that wasn't the 40 years, the four decades of his life that was the most important. I don't think. I think it was the 40 years prior to that. That he spent out there in the desert, watching sheep, alone with God, thinking, getting this thing figured out. I think that's when Moses became a great leader. You know, we talk about the exploits of a man like David. We say, look at that leadership. Man, what he did as he, as he slew that giant, as he led Israel to become a world power. But I think it was the 20 years prior to that or so that David was alone out there around Bethlehem. And, and nature was his companion, and nature was his teacher. And, and as he looked at those sheep there on the hillside of Bethlehem, which is a, a city that's kind of on a, a ridge with a valley on both sides, about 2,000 feet above sea level, about six, seven, eight miles south of Jerusalem. There he was, and, and amongst those grapes that grew on that ridge, and amongst that corn, and, and amongst that, the wheat fields. By the way, Bethlehem means house of bread. There were, there were plush wheat fields around there. That's where the shepherds lived. That's where the shepherds watched their flock. And, and that's where David, I believe, became a great man, a great leader. I think before Elijah ever had a showdown on the top of Mount Carmel and confronted those false prophets of Baal, his greatness was cultivated out there in that, that desert alone for three years. We could talk about that. We could talk about Paul's three years in the Arabian desert as well. Just a blip in the Bible in Galatians that we see where he was out there going to Bible college and, and alone with God. And, and we look at the life of Paul as we follow him through the book of Acts. It mentions nothing about those three years in, in the Arabian desert. But that's where Paul became the great apostle. But I think of all leaders, Jesus Christ emerges as the one who needed to ponder and think and muse and be alone and continually had the apostles coming to him and saying, Master, Master this. And, and there were the people and the crowds coming to him for miracles and healing and food and all other kinds of things. But Jesus Christ was desperate to get alone. A leader needs to learn to lead when he's all alone. In Psalm 4 and verse 4, it says, Stand in awe and sin not. 
Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Just ponder. Just think. Just muse. Just get alone. That's hard as a pastor, by the way. Uh, We need time alone to get things in perspective. You know, I uh, try and get up before other people get up and, and, uh, and spend some time praying for them. A preacher years ago, I'm not sure who he was, said that we ought to pray for folks while they're sleeping and serve folks while they're awake. I like that. I believe in that. Nehemiah was out praying and thinking while people back in Jerusalem were sleeping. And they had no idea what God was putting on his heart. Nehemiah learned to motivate by his time alone. By his time alone. You know, we think busyness is spiritual, don't we? Well, busy, busy, busy. That's spiritual. Well, learn a lesson here from Nehemiah. It's what we do when we're alone. Now, what's happening here? Notice in verse 12 again. He says, So I rose in the night, I and some few men with me, Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rose upon. Notice what he says in verse 12. God had put something in his heart. He had been thinking. He had been meditating. That's when God lays things on our heart. We read back in Genesis about a fellow by the name of Isaac. And he never ascribes to the greatness of his dad, Abraham, or even his son, Jacob. Kind of more of an obscure patriarch. And yet he was a great man, no doubt. And I think one of the things that made him great was his time alone, thinking, pondering. We get a little glimpse of that in Genesis 24, 63, where it says, And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. Now, he didn't expect them. He didn't expect his future wife to be in that train, but he did what he was always doing. And God came to him. Notice, Isaac went out to meditate in the field, at the eventide. We live in a noisy world, don't we? I mean, a lot of silly, idle chatter going on all the time. It's, it's hard to get away from the talking heads. You, you go into a, a restaurant, there it is. There it is in businesses, and, and all this chatter going on. The talking heads follow us. But we need those promptings from God. If we're ever going to get them, we have to get alone with God. You know, there are, there are hundreds or thousands, really, thousands of things that the Lord has laid on my heart during our early morning time together. For 25 years, I've tried to have that time with him as a pastor of this church. I had a young man, he, he preached, or he's going to be preaching here in the near future, I think, uh, coming up in a few months. But he's starting a church not too far, a few hundred miles away from here over in, in Minnesota. And he asked me recently, what advice would you give me? How can, how can I succeed for God in this town I'm going to? You know, any success we have is by grace, first and foremost, by grace alone. But honestly, I think it comes through uh, God prompting our hearts as we have time to think and get alone with Him and get His mind on matters. That's what Nehemiah was doing. Notice in verse 15, he says, Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall. There's that wall. That wall had had been torn down by Nebuchadnezzar over a hundred years earlier. And now he's examining it. That's what that word viewed means there. Shabar in the Hebrew means he examined it. He scrutinized that wall. He's he's carefully probing the whole thing and putting it together in his mind because that's the job of a leader. That's the part of a leader. Now, may I say that there is a, a difference, a difference between being aware of details and being overwhelmed by details and frozen by details. And overwhelmed by the task at hand. A perfectionist will get lost in the quagmire of a big task. 
That's what will happen. They'll, they'll look at this overwhelming job and just say, where do I start? I'm not going to even start. And there's a temptation to do that. Many years ago, I'd, I'd done electrical work and, uh, and wired smaller houses, but I, I got a job one summer for uh, a place that wired huge houses. And so I went in there the first day, and the journeyman had already been in there, and he'd been running wires for weeks all over the place. And I looked at this thing, and I thought, oh, my soul. And during coffee break, I said to him, how do you know where all these wires are going? He said, well, you just start in a corner, and you don't worry about the end result. You just start in the corner and work your way out of that corner. That was good advice. Because there have been times we've bitten off around here more than we could chew, and, or even beforehand looked around and said, what in the world are we doing? How are we going to do this? You know what we did over across the parking lot here several months ago? We just dug a hole and, all right, let's, let's dig in here and let's see what happens. And one day at a time, it happens. You've got to be able to just stand back and investigate without freezing and watch the perfectionism. It'll shut you down. And so we find here, Nehemiah, he's pondering the whole thing. And I'm telling you, the, the mess he was looking at that had been like that for decades was overwhelming. We see the skippers pondering. But secondly, we see the Semites prompting. Now it's time to get the Jews involved, to compel and to prompt the Jews to get busy. It's time to motivate them. Notice in verse number 17, Nehemiah, giving us what's in his heart, his journal, he says, Then said I unto them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Now, it's time for him to take control. He'd been a cupbearer. Now he's going to be a, a builder. He goes from butler to builder to eventually boss. But now he's switching hats, and it's time for him to lead in this building project and to give certain people certain jobs. If you've ever done any leader, leading, you know that there are certain people cut out for certain tasks. And there were no doubt men who were good at demolition. And there were men who were good at cutting stones. And there were, there were men who were good at mixing the mortar and, and leveling the ground. Maybe there were those who couldn't cut stones, but, but uh, they could carry water. Or they might be able to build the gates or prepare the food or cast those hinges somehow. And, and there are certain people which are good at certain things. And a leader needs to be careful not to try and put a square peg into a round hole. There are certain people that just don't take to certain positions. Nehemiah's job was to motivate. Now notice how he did it in verse 17. Then said I unto them, you see the distress that we are in. He didn't say that you're in, but we are in. How Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates are ever burned with fire. Come and let us, notice the word us, didn't say let you build up the wall of Jerusalem, but us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we, notice not ye, but ye, but we be no more a reproach. He identified with the need. He included himself in this mess. He didn't say, this is your mess. I live back in Shushan the palace. I have a cushy job. I don't even need to be here. I just came to, to kick some tail and, and get some people moving here. Now get with it. He didn't do that, did he? He said, we have a problem here. It, it's not your problem, it's our problem. It's not your reproach, it's our reproach. And, and so he got with them, alongside of them, and worked with them. By the way, they had gotten used to the mess. You ever notice how easy it is when you've lived in something long enough and you don't even see it anymore? If the garage is cluttered, you just kind of, oh, I didn't even notice it until after you clean it. We had some walls upstairs in our, our house that as the house had settled over the years, they had cracked. And, and uh, we, you know, you walk by them every day and so you don't even notice it until you fix it. And then 
You stand back and you go, how did, how did we put up with that? I mean, that was, that was bad. But they had gotten used to the mess here. And so here's Nehemiah, and he could have been pointing fingers, but, but, but pointing fingers squashes motivation. It's really not that fruitful. And uh, Nehemiah doesn't do that. He gets alongside of them and, and works. You know, I, uh, I was injured here uh, several months ago, and it was about the time, shortly before the time, that uh, we, we had flood issues in the area, and it was time to prepare our house for the flood. I could have just said, all right, I have an excuse this time. You guys get out there and do it. I couldn't offer uh, everything I used to, but uh, I didn't make it their problem. It was our problem. We had something we needed to fix here. And so we find Nehemiah, he's, he's empathizing with the people. He's feeling alongside of them. Uh, he's putting himself in, in the mixture here. And we find he's prompting them. We find the Semites prompting. You know, in Hebrews 3.13, the Bible says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin is, is like our hallway upstairs that had cracks in it, and, you, and, and we didn't even notice it. And every so often, we need an exhortation. These folks had gotten used to the mess. And here's, here's Nehemiah. He's not scolding them. He's prompting them. He's exhorting them. He's giving them a, an invitation to rise up and build. It's not a rah, 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 one for the team, 23 skidoo, let's do this for the gipper. It's, it's none of that stuff. He, he just says, let's get going on this. Let's do this for God. You know, sometimes we get incentives for doing things. If a kid gets a good report card, he gets a dollar for every A he gets. Or, or if a kid in college makes the dean's list, dad helps him buy a car. Or, or maybe uh, there's a Christmas bonus on the line. Or uh, maybe a trip to Hawaii. And I'm not against rewards. God's for rewards. God's going to reward us one day. But Nehemiah never offers any of that. Never any, any trip to the Jordan River, uh, all, all expenses paid, you know, if, if you're the best bricklayer. There's, there's no incentive like that. He just says, let's rebuild. Let's do it. It's done. People get on board. People get excited because God had primed their hearts. We find here the Semites prompting here. And we find here exhortation, just simple exhortation. The Bible teaches exhortation all over it. We see in Acts 11.23 that when Barnabas came, and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. There's something powerful about a, a good word of exhortation. Barnabas gave them that. Not too long ago, we had a fellow from uh, California here, Stephen Ray Nichols. He preached and he sung. And, and the next day, we showed him the ministry training center out there. And I, I so appreciated what he did. He, he got the fellows in the gym there, just kind of converged naturally who were out there building. And, and he exhorted them. And, and tried to, to encourage them and get them to see the magnitude of what we're doing here and the fruit that's going to come out of it. I realized what he was doing there. That's what Barnabas did. He exhorted them all that with, with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Well, in verse 18, notice, Nehemiah says, Then I told them of the hand of my God which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, and I love this, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Let us rise up and build. By the way, if you want to find out if somebody's a leader or not, just check and see who's following them. Somebody said, if, if you think you're leading and, and nobody's following, you're just out for a walk. <laughs> and so we find out here that Nehemiah is a leader. 
And that they say, let's rise up and build. So we see the Semites prompting. But thirdly, we see Sanballat's persecution. Now, we're going to learn more later about Sanballat, but he's kind of the snidely whiplash of the Bible, him and a couple of sidekicks. Notice in verse number 19, it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that you do? Will ye rebel against the king? Now notice, as soon as this thing gets off the ground, here comes the cold water committee to throw cold water on the whole thing. And that's typical. We have a, a preacher from our church that we ordained some time back uh, who, uh, who took a church in a southern state and was, was voted nearly unanimously into that, that pastorate position except for one family. And that one family gave them trouble from the get-go and they're already gone. There are always those who won't cooperate. There are always those who won't uh, submit. There's, there's those who won't get with a program. We find them all over the Bible. You know, when Joshua and company were out conquering the new promised land there, everybody was excited, but there was a tribe, Ephraim, which uh, is a whole sermon within itself, normally crybabies and whiners, and they had a problem with the portion of the land that they received. In Joshua 17.14, the children of Joseph spake unto Joshua, saying, Why hast thou given me but one lot? And one portion to inherit, seeing I am a great people, for as much as the Lord hath blessed me hitherto. Notice the negos here. They always show up. By the way, they can be real spiritual, can't they? The Lord has blessed us. We're a big tribe, and so on and so forth. They can be real spiritual. But there's always going to be those. There's always going to be that persecution. We understand that. And we see it in verse 19. It says, they laughed them to scorn. It means they mocked them. They were mocking them. And they said, you're rebelling. You're rebelling against the king's commandment. I'm sure Nehemiah said, no, we got the letters right here. Remember that plan? He had that all figured out. Well, in verse 20, Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. And he drew the line and he said, Buzz off. We're not on the same page. You know, a leader needs to recognize wolves. These are guys who pretended at first they were sincere, but they weren't. And it's a leader's job to recognize insincerity, to recognize wolves, to have discernment, and take some guff in the process. May I say to you that some followers will wonder why you're being such a meanie and, and wonder why you're being so hard-nosed and be taken in by a wolf and sympathize with them, and you're going to take some criticism as a leader. It's just going to happen. But I want to say I'm not above listening to critics, but if they're off the mark, if they don't have the mind of Christ, ignore them. You ignore them, and you move on. And, and normally, they're way out of their realm of jurisdiction anyway. And they have their nose where it doesn't belong. That was the case with Sanballat and Tobiah. And that's why Nehemiah said to him in verse 20, you have no portion. This is not your business here. God's not called you to do this. Just go away. Buzz off. So we see Sanballat's persecution, but finally we see sovereignty's partnership. You see, the reason this thing is flying and it's going so well is God is in it. And the Jewish people, with Nehemiah as their leader, are in a partnership with God here. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, we read that we are laborers together with God. It says, ye are God's husbandry. That word husbandry there means workers in a field. And, and, and we talk about the fields that are white unto harvest and the fact that, that we are laborers together with God. We are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. 
We read in 2 Corinthians 6.1, We then as workers together with Him beseech you, that, or beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Notice, workers together with Him. I like that. We're workers together with God. And, and what we are doing, what they were doing back in 450 B.C. was, was bigger than anybody else. What we're doing here is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. And, and this is about God. It's not about us. We are in a partnership with God. And Nehemiah realized that. Notice in verse 12. I want to show you how I know this. Nehemiah says, And I rose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. God was leading in this. Notice in verse 18. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. Notice, Nehemiah recognized he was a partner with God. And then in verse 20, Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, He will prosper us. And when a leader realizes that he has God's backing, and he has God's endorsement, all hell can't keep him from succeeding. So we see the sovereignty's partnership. We, as a New Testament church here at Fargo Baptist Church, are in a partnership with God. I believe that with all of my heart. That keeps me going. That ought to keep all of us going. The fact that what we're doing, we're doing for Him, and what He sees, what He thinks, is all that matters. Back in the uh, 1967 NFL playoffs, the championship game, the Green Bay Packers were playing the Dallas Cowboys in, uh, in, in Wisconsin. It was 15 below. It was a cold game. It was a hard-fought game. And, and finally it came down to, I think, one or two seconds left on the clock. Two timeouts had been called. The score was 17-14. to 14. Green Bay was right on the goal line, but a field goal wouldn't win it. They needed a touchdown. Bart Starr, the quarterback, called a timeout. He went over, he talked to Lombardi, the famous coach. And Lombardi said, well, you, sh- you should run this, but I'll leave it up to you. Starr went back to the huddle, and uh, they couldn't figure out what to do. He called timeout again and went over there and talked some more. And he said, once again, whatever you think. So Bart Starr went back and he did something he had never done. He said, what do you guys think we ought to do? <laughs> He's sitting in the huddle and, and, and nobody said a word. And so he said again, anyone have a suggestion? Finally, a lineman over on the left side said, run behind, do it, quarterback sneak behind Jerry. Jerry Kramer was a lineman on the right side. In other words, I don't want it on, on my shoulders. You go over to that side and see if you can sneak this thing in. So Bart Sauer called a quarterback sneak, and uh, the ball was sn- uh, set and snapped, and, and uh, Jerry Kramer, I think, plowed into Bob Lilly, if, I'm, if I remember right, and uh, knocked him forward. All Bart Starr had to do was fall into the end zone, and they won. The place erupted. I mean, they came unglued, and they, they came out on the field, and they, they grabbed Bart Starr, and they put him up on their shoulders, and they whisked him off the field, and everybody celebrated, and, and there was little old Jerry Kramer off by himself, with no accolades at all. He was really the one who had won the game. But Vince Lombardi knew who had won the game. And when everybody else had uh, kind of cleared out, Lombardi looked over at Kramer and he just gave him the thumbs up. And that's all Kramer needed. That's all he needed. He had, he had pleased the coach. The coach had noticed. Folks, as long as our Heavenly Father notices, it's all that matters. It's all that matters. Nehemiah kept his eyes on God and realized he was in a partnership with God. We need to do that always. We have a choir director. And a, a choir director is somebody that everybody in the choir or the orchestra needs to keep their eyes on, to keep going in the same direction. 
Put God on a pedestal. Don't ever put anyone on, on a pedestal but God. They're going to let you down time and time again. Never put a preacher, never put a church staff member on a pedestal. They will let you down. doesn't matter who they are. I was talking to someone a while back here, and, and they said, you know, I'm distrusting of preachers. And it goes way back, and he said, but I've been listening to you on the radio for 10 years and finally decided you're the real deal. Well, I don't know if I'm the real deal. In fact, I'm not the real deal. Nobody's the real deal. And, and any, any leader, including the best of leaders, can still go down the tubes. Don't ever put your eyes on anybody. Keep your eyes off of others. Keep your eyes off yourself. Off yourself. That's the wrong place. Uh, you'll be puffed up with pride. You'll be lost in insecurity. Keep your eyes on the choir director. He'll never let you down. Motivated by love, just keep going forward. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that the love of Christ constraineth us. That's what kept Nehemiah going. The love of the Lord kept him going. He met the director. He knew he was in partnership with God. He gave God the controls and he kept going forward. We find that sovereignty's partnership is that which will keep us going. We're working together with God. In Mark 16, 20, it says, And they, that, that is the disciples, went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. Notice, the Lord working with them. Do you believe we have the Lord working with us? I do. And that makes this the most important work on the face of the globe. The Lord working with us. We've talked about the skipper's pondering, the Semites prompting, Sanballat's persecution, and sovereignty's partnership. And, and really, as we see these things evolve in the book of Nehemiah, we see the way to lead and we realize God has given people leadership abilities, if you will, not to uh, consume it upon our own lusts, but to use like Nehemiah did for God's glory, to lead for the Lord. Amen? You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.